0: In verse 21, we see a, a huge transition in Romans. Anytime uh, Similar to what we've talked about, therefore, anytime you see, but now, some of the sweetest words in all the Bible are, but now, but now. Why, Why is that sweet? Because for the last four weeks, we've been looking at how wretched we are, how sinful we are. Making sure that, that we understand, Paul goes to great lengths to make sure that we understand how unrighteous we are. And it goes way deeper than simply committing sins in our person, in our nature. We are unrighteous, we're sinners. More than we know, more than we think, more than we even like to think, we, in, apart from Christ, we are unrighteous, we are wretched. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Above all else, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We don't like to think of ourselves that way, but again, that's, that's who we are apart from Christ. We are sinners. And the question becomes this okay, now what? In light of that reality, in light of that sinfulness, in light of that separation from a holy God, now what? How can and the question. The question, this is, again, this isn't the question that most of us are thinking about when it comes to the gospel probably, but the core question is this. How does a righteous God rightly justify or forgive sinners? How can God, who is perfectly holy, how can he forgive sinners and yet maintain his righteousness at the very time he does that? That's the issue. The whole world is is under sin, it says in verse 9 of chapter 3. Accountable to God. How can a righteous, holy God reconcile those people back to himself? That is the issue. It, It may not be the main issue to us, But that's the main issue to God, and and Paul seeks to explain exactly how that takes place. How did God make a way for sinners, totally separated from a holy God, how did God make a way for them to be rightly forgiven in a way that, that they could be declared righteous and God would remain righteous in forgiving them? And before we jump in and look at the individual verses of verses 21 through 26, I, I want to spend today giving us the big picture and as I said really it boils down to to one word, propitiation. We in our we like puzzles. Uh we like to do puzzles. And and I thought about this this illustration. I, I we were up in the mountains and a couple weeks ago and and, and there was some puzzles up there and when you put together a puzzle, you have all these individual pieces laying in front of you. And when we do puzzles, yet the, we like to set, because on that box of that puzzle that all those pieces came in is a picture of what the end puzzle looks like, right? They give you an idea, hey, all those 500,000, 2,000 pieces that look like they have no relationship to each other, when you put them together, here's what it's going to look like. And so I like to set the box up so I can look at it. Because sometimes you'll have a little piece and it's, it's red and everything is green. But in the top right corner, there's these trees that have all red leaves. You know what I know? I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I can realize that goes in the top right corner. See what I'm saying? The picture, the big picture, helps you to understand where the little pieces go. How they fit in. Paul's going to give us a bunch of pieces here in 21 through 26 with the idea of what the big picture looks like. And the big picture is propitiation. I want us to see the big picture. I want us to see the heart of the gospel here. So that when we look at 21 through 26 and and we look at it, he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. How? I want hopefully after today you'll understand that and when he says that through the blood of Christ hopefully we'll understand that. We'll dig in more next week, but again, we need to see the big picture. We apart from Christ, we're in desperate need of a righteousness that is outside of us. God's wrath justly sits upon us apart from Christ. How does a righteous God reconcile unrighteous people back to himself and maintain his righteousness that, that is the dilemma if you will of the gospel and in our text what paul shows is in god's great mercy god made a way for the unrighteous worthy again worthy recipients of his wrath due to our sin god made a way he made a way so he could offer us forgiveness that we could be declared righteous and God would remain righteous. That the wrath that's due our sin, that that God had to pour out on our sin, that how could he satisfy that? And he did it in the gospel. The law demanded, God's righteousness demanded even in Romans 3, 26, we'll see it. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, you die. So how, how could God forgive us even though we've sinned and we not die? That's the gospel. And as we've seen again in Romans, humanities our issue... The issue that must be solved, that must be dealt with, is our sinfulness. And that sin warrants the wrath of God, but that sin also demands that you die. Somebody's got to die. And when I say sin, hear me, a reminder, it goes way deeper than just your actions. We're talking about your core being, your nature. Your nature. It's not just about your actions. Those actions flow from, from a nature that alone is rebellious to God is at enmity to God. Your nature is where those sinful actions flow. Again, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Your nature is opposed. Your nature, apart from Christ, is at enmity to God. And and again, that is the number one issue between you and I. I That's the number one issue in our lives. It's sin. My number one issue is sin. Sin. And that sin has created animosity, it's created enmity between me and a holy God. And Roman, again, Romans one eighteen through through3:20 made that abundantly clear. And if God, again, we stand apart from Christ in need of deliverance, and, and if God is going to forgive us, some things have to happen. Number one, the main thing I want us to see today is God must be propitiated, satisfied. If we're going to be rightly saved, there's some things that have to happen. God cannot, as a righteous judge, just sweep our sins under the rug and act like nothing ever happened. So the main point, you see it on your handout, the main point, our sin has created enmity between us and the one true God. And the gospel is God's solution to how sinful humanity can be forgiven of their sin in a way that allows God, here it is, to remain righteous at the same time He declares sinners to be righteous. How can both those things happen? That's the gospel. How can God forgive sinners in such a way that He remains righteous? And the gospel solves the issue. The gospel, again, listen, the gospel may reach and impact many other things in your life. Don't get me wrong. But the primary reason we need a Savior is for, is for the forgiveness of our sin. Not a better marriage. Not, not all this other stuff that, we, that, we, that, we, that we're, people are selling over and over. Your best life. All these other things. Listen to me. You need a Savior. That's the issue that the gospel solves. You need a satisfactory payment for your sin. You, you, the wrath that is justly due do do your sin needs to be settled, needs to be satisfied. That's the issue that the gospel solves. Listen, you come to God, to, to you come to the gospel to get God, to, to be forgiven of your sin. Not all this other stuff that we cloud this with. Not to become popular, not to fit in, not to know. You get You get forgiven. Your issue is forgiveness. My issue is forgiveness. Why? Because you see it in a handout. The issue behind all of our issues is our sinfulness. All these other things are just are issues that flow out of the real issue that in my nature, I am a, I am a rebel. In my nature, left alone, I'm a God hater, I'm an enemy. That nature has got to be dealt with. And this connects, again, it connects all the way back to what we saw in 1, 15 and 16. Why Paul would say he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel solves that issue. Again, and what does Paul say back in verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, here it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What does he say in verse 21? But now, apart from the law, he goes back to verses 15 through 17. What does he say? The righteousness of God has been revealed. What does the gospel reveal more than anything else? It reveals that God is righteous. Righteousness. Listen, what God promised long, long ago, all the way back, you can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, what God promised long ago, that He would send a Savior who would crush Satan's head. Satan would bruise his heel. Go to Genesis 3.15, you can see it. Satan would bruise his heel, but Jesus would crush Satan's head. What God promised long ago, thousands of years later, He was faithful to do. Again, righteous. Only, look, you and I as sinners are not righteous. Only righteous people go to heaven. Only righteous people can be in God's presence. How does God do that? How does God solve that dilemma? He solves it in the gospel. And in this, in the gospel, God reveals, again, not only His own righteousness, but He reveals how you and I can be made righteous. He reveals the standard. And the standard is perfection. We've said it. You can go to Matthew 5.20. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fast forward to verse 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's an is- That's the issue. We're not perfect. So, how does a holy God declare sinners to be righteous? And verses 21 through 26 explains, Paul explains how this happens. How sinners are saved and how God remains righteous in saving sinners. Because in everything he does, we're going through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. In every every letter we look at, here's the truth God is faithful. God is faithful. And in every, every letter we look at, in spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their living according to their own wisdom, God always gives them a glimmer of hope. Even this past Wednesday, we looked at Micah. And in Micah 5.2, what does God say? There's coming a Savior who will be born in Bethlehem. All throughout the Old Testament, God promised that. Go back to Isaiah, go to Jeremiah, go to Ezekiel, go to Micah. Where There's a Savior coming. And when we see that, all of a sudden, verse 25 makes sense, that in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. How would God do that? Because there was a Savior coming that was going to pay for those sins. And as I said, that, that's the dilemma of the gospel. How does a, a holy God justify unholy people? How does he declare unrighteous people righteous? And you see it in the handout. That's the dilemma. The two, two issues that are in play in the gospel are this. How can sinners be declared righteous while fulfilling the penalty justly do their sin? The law, listen, the penalty of sin is death. How can God forgive you? How can God forgive me without killing us? Secondly, how can God maintain his righteous character in forgiving sinners? How can God do these two things simultaneously? And again, like I said, that's probably not what you woke up this morning thinking was the biggest issue in your life. That's probably not the dilemma that you woke up this morning trying to solve. But listen, that's the issue. And that's why Jesus Christ had to die. And both of these stipulations had to be met simultaneously. And God did that in the gospel. Hugely important that we grasp this. But but it's hugely important that we communicate it as well. because, Because listen, we don't communicate those two truths most of the time when people communicate the gospel. Most of the time when we communicate the gospel, you know what we only communicate? We only communicate that God loves you. And we communicate that the gospel is a picture of just how greatly God loves you. And it's a, it's a testimony to your worth. And it's testimony. Listen, that's not what Paul says. Now listen, that's built into the gospel. But you know what the gospel primarily declares? That God is righteous. That's the primary declaration. And even within that, God's love of you in spite of your sinfulness, just like he was faithful to Israel, in spite of that, listen, is because he's righteous. But but not only that. Here's the other half that we don't share. Because you're a sinner, God is justly, ju- you justly deserve God's wrath. Do your sin. That's the other point we don't share, because that's actually what people are being saved from. In Christ, you are being saved from the wrath of God. Do your sin. You see how it's very important that we share both sides of this coin. What are we being saved from? That's the issue. The wrath of God. And God's solution, you see it on a handout. Here comes the word. I'm going to spell it for you in case you can't. God's solution to both revealing his righteousness and rightly declaring sinners to be righteous is propitiation. There it is. Propitiation. Million dollar word. But listen, it's hugely important. And I want us to leave here understanding this word. Why? So that we can share this word. Look at verse 25. Paul mentions it. Whom God displayed publicly, here it is, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Again, what did this demonstrate? His righteousness. Righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. I want us to understand this concept so that we can put all of these individual puzzle pieces. I want to paint for us the big picture today so then we can put all these individual pieces together in the right place. And I want to do it by answering a few questions just so we can see that this is nothing new. This idea of propitiation is nothing new. So the first thing you see on your handout, what is propitiation? The word, basically, if you want to, I'm not the smartest person in the world, so I'm like, okay, try to, try to dumb it down. Satisfy. Satisfy. Propitiation is the biblical doctrine that the death of Christ fully, here it is, satisfied the demands of a righteous God in respect to judgment upon a sinner while rightly declaring them to be righteous. Listen, if you don't walk away from here from any other word, any other idea, hopefully you will. Satisfied. Propitiation equals satisfied. Christ's death fully satisfied the demands of a righteous God, so thereby God can rightly forgive you and I of our sins. Why can God forgive you? Because Jesus Christ fully satisfied the demands. That's what we have to grasp. If you did a word study, unfortunately, this this actual word, the actual word propitiation doesn't show up that often. It actually shows up four times. Here in Romans 3.25, it shows up in Hebrews 2.17, it shows up in 1 John 2.2, 2, and it shows up in 1 John 4.10, and we're going to look at some of those in a minute. Because of this, uh, I think sometimes we, we, we take the idea that it's not as important as it really is. The problem is you see it throughout the entire Bible. And that's what I want us to see partially this morning, that it is the theme, really, if you will, that really will sum up the entire Bible. And you see it, again, in the Old Testament. You see it in your handout. How is propitiation seen in the Old Testament? Again, as we've said, our issue, what stands between us and a holy God is our sin. And because of that sin, our, the wrath of God is warranted. God is totally justified in His wrath towards our sin. And the wrath of God is a very important uh, concept, truth, throughout the entire Bible, over 580 times in the Old Testament alone, you see the wrath of God regarded, pointed to, the wrath of God. Again, the issue of the gospel becomes, okay, how is the wrath of God dealt with? And we see this in pictures In the Old Testament, God in His grace, again, in Leviticus and following, He offered sin offerings, guilt offerings. All right, And you see it on your handout. We see propitiation in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system where God required that a perfect animal be offered to represent the sins of Israel. The, The animal that died was representative of the sins of the people. All throughout Leviticus, you see this the people would lay their hands on the animal, they would identify with that animal, and they would c- kill that animal. They would sprinkle that blood. And that, that was a picture. Again, that's why Hebrews 9, he says, the picture was this, without the, there is no, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But Hebrews 10 clearly tells us that it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that forgives our sins. That's why it's important where Paul says, we'll see it in a, next week, in Christ's blood. Blood had to be shed. We see this very clearly in Leviticus 15 and 16 with regards to the Day of Atonement. What would happen there is they would take two goats. One goat would be slaughtered. They would take the blood of that goat. They would sprinkle it on the head of another goat. They would lay their hands on that goat, identifying with those goats. And that goat that lived would be sent out into the wilderness. What what was the picture the picture was of propitiation, that because of your sin, blood must be shed, but there's coming a sacrifice one day who is going to not only forgive your sins, but separate your sins as far as the east is from the west from you, Psalm 103, 12. That's the point. Never to return again. The whole You see it on your handout. In the Day of Atonement, God revealed the picture that through the sacrifice of a representative substitute, The word there is substitute. God's wrath was averted, and the sins of the people were carried away out of sight, never to interfere with their relationship again. That was the picture, again, a temporary picture, because week after week and year after year, they offered these sacrifices. Again, go read Hebrews, that's the superiority of Christ. So Christ did it one time for all men, once and for all. When I say for all men, not that everybody's automatically saved, but the sufficiency of his offering would be sufficient as it were, for the sins of the whole world. And again, ironically, that's what, that's what John says in 1 John 2, 2, where the word propitiation is another place it's used. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, the righteous, important. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Christ offered one sacrifice for all, sufficient for all. If you you call out on Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there has been made an offering that is sufficient to forgive you of your sins. And in the entire Old Testament, again, that was the picture. That sin is costly. That apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But they were looking forward, again, still looking forward to one day Christ would come. Why? Because God promised that. Again, Hebrews 10.4, what he says, it wasn't the blood of bulls bulls and goats that takes away the sin. It was a picture pointing to to one day God would offer the perfect sacrifice. and Paul is explaining that Jesus Christ is that perfect sacrifice. He is the propitiation. Why does you say why does it matter because the Old Testament uh, the concept the Old Testament concept of propitiation, again, it was set in contrast to to the pagan idea of trying to satisfy a moody or or unreasonable deity. What God is picturing here is in, in divine righteousness, His divine righteousness is satisfied by a propitiation, a payment from Himself. One day the payment will be made by Himself. Even in the Old Testament, who, who designed this system? This wasn't man trying to get to God on their own. God made a way for sinners to be reconciled. God is making a way. He's giving them a picture. Listen, one day I'm going to provide the perfect sacrifice for your sins. And you see it on your handout. In the Old Testament, we see that propitiation takes place at the will and the initiative of God himself. The initiative of God himself. And this is the point that the New Testament, again, they're looking to Christ that it would build on to to rightly grasp and appreciate the superiority of Christ. The once and for allness of Christ. The blood of the animals doesn't remove sin. It showed, it was pointing in faith that Christ would come, that one day Christ would pay the sin demanded. I mean, would pay the penalty that sin demanded. And the Old Testament prepares the way. It gives us that picture for the New Testament propitiation in the New Testament. And I say all that again, I hope it helps you see the wonder and the amazement and the sufficiency and the superiority of Christ and compared to those bulls and goats. Again, in the New Testament you see it. The New Testament doctrine of propitiation is an extension, if you will, of the Old Testament doctrine, but with the added revelation of Jesus Christ. In the the New Testament, the same God is found in the Old Testament that, that the Old Testament revealed. A God of infinite righteousness, but also infinite love, but also hates sin. And throughout the New Testament, not as much times, but again, it's written to believers who are not under the wrath of God any longer, praise God, but you do see the picture, and the New Testament abounds with warnings in dealing with the wrath of God. Even our context here, verse 118 of Romans, what did it say? For the wrath of God is already being revealed against all unrighteousness, against men and women who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Even in the very context of, our, of Romans 3.21, Paul is dealing, how do you deal with the wrath of God? Do your sin. That's the issue. And, and again, all of this points to the death of Christ as the perfect propitiation, satisfactory payment for the sins of God's creation. And all throughout the New Testament, the writers in the New Testament offer picture and picture and picture and picture so that we would grasp the fullness of Christ. And you see some some listed. I struggled because this makes your handout long and a lot of fill-ins, but, but, but I, I struggled putting this in here, but I think it's necessary if you see the the fullness of what Christ offered, but also so that it will will help destroy our idea that we can do anything to get to God ourselves. Do you really think you can do all of this? I mean, again, the work of Christ is seen as reconciliation. Romans 5 talks about that. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, listen, we shall be saved by this life. The work of Christ is seen as redemption. Here in our own text, verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redeemed means to to buy back. It it specifically spoke to, to, to purchasing a slave out of the slave market. The work of Christ is seen as a sacrifice. Again, reminding us of that Old Testament. In, in, in Ephesians chapter five, verse two, you walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God. the The work of Christ is seen as self giving. Galatians one four. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. John one twenty nine shows it as sin-bearing. The work of Christ is seen as sin-bearing. He bore our sins. Even even 2 Corinthians 5, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Lastly, the work of Christ is seen as blood-shedding. It was absolutely necessary that he shed his blood. Again, as we've seen, even in Hebrews 9, 14, talking about, for if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes and a heifer, if they were to, def, had been defiled, if those animals had been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, listen, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Again, Christ is that perfect sacrifice. Every single one of these, what, are the, what is the writer doing? It's painting the picture of God putting away sin and restoring fellowship. It's the idea of what was pictured in the Old Testament, pointing to Christ. Why? Because people sin. And as such, they need a Savior. And again, all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, here's the point. We see God initiating this process. God is the one initiating this. Even verse 25, listen, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And what we see is, as in the Old Testament, you see it in your handout, we see the New Testament, that propitiation takes place at the will and the initiative of God the Father. And this is important, this is immensely important because the pagan view that dominated the Greek culture was, the, was that propitiation. People would offer propitiation, they would offer sacrifices to their gods to try to render, the, to render themselves forgivable. Almost like they were trying to buy their way into the, to the, to the deity's good graces to try to buy their way or, or twist their arm into forgiving them. And yet here in the Bible, what is the one true God doing? The one true God is making a way on his own for sinful man to be propitiated. God always said he would make a way, and he did. Again, in a a culture where, and listen, we're not much different to this, and we'll get to this in a minute, even in this church, even in this gathering. In a culture where many gods existed simultaneously, and, and in a culture where those gods had to be manipulated by the offering or sacrifices. They would, you would offer a sacrifice to your God to try to get them to do what you wanted them to do, to keep them pacified, to keep them in good graces, to keep them on your side. In contrast to that, the Bible offers the gospel where the one true God himself offers the propitiation on behalf of his enemies. Do you see the difference? God is the one doing this. grasp this the the biblical gospel is that God propitiates himself on behalf of others even his enemies sinners and you see it on your handout the Bible offers a gospel whereby the one true God satisfies his anger due sin by making his own offering that is unfathomable God made his own offering even His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, so that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord could be saved, so that you could be declared righteous as a sinner and God would remain righteous as God. And listen, even today, this is a battle. Even today in this church, my great fear is this is how most people view religion is is through appeasing of the gods of of manipulating them of trying to keep them on your side or trying to keep the karma good or 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 good luck or or thinking well if i do this god you have to do that listen it's still present today i i promise you every single one of us in this church have thought that i read my bible today god what you gonna do hey, I come to church all this time and this is what happens? I, I showed you the quote a while back from a, from a football player. I won't name him just because we all say dumb things and I'll protect him, but he, say, he, he dropped a key pass in a, in a football game that cost his team the game. He was a very outspoken professed Christian and afterwards he tweets, God, I worship you 24-7 and I serve you all my life and this is how you treat me? You see his mentality? His mentality toward Christianity is no different than the Greek false religion. I do this, therefore, God, you have to do this. That is a pagan mentality. It's treating the God of the Bible, again, God loves us, not more or less because of something we do. God loves us because of who Christ is. And the total sufficiency of Christ. And again, even in Christian circles, again, some of you might be here today trying to twist God's arm. I got a big job interview tomorrow, I better go to church. Oh man, I I met this great girl, and and you know, if I start going to church, she'll, she'll date me. I need this, so I better go to church. We laugh, but listen, that, do you see how that mentality undermines the gospel? you see how that mentality takes, a, takes something that is totally set apart from the rest of the world and it just reduces it down to a, a pagan, worldly mindset? God just beca- the one true God of the Bible just becomes one of the other gods and His nature of righteousness is, is destroyed. And it falls short of the biblical gospel, that in Christ's offering, God was fully satisfied. Therefore, he can freely forgive anyone who places their faith in Christ. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. I mean, I hope you begin to see even why works fall short. I mean, like, we saw it the other week, even the right, uh, Isaiah 64, 6, even our things done in righteousness are filthy rags. Why? Because our motives are all messed up. You see how wretchedly sinful we are that we can even be sitting here right now falsely worshiping God, thinking the whole time it's all about me. Now, we wouldn't be supposed to say that, but if you're here today to twist God's arm, guess why you're here today? It ain't for God. If you read your Bible to get God to do something, you ain't doing it for God. And the problem with all of that, the problem with, with again, diluting the Christ plus n- nothing equals salvation, is it a, it, if I bring something to the table, if I do something, we are undermining the f- sufficiency of Jesus Christ's offering. That's what's so disdainful. We're undermining the sufficiency of God's offering. That's why idolatry is so offensive. And this is a silly illustration. But think about this. This is not in my notes. This is where we go crazy. but But it would be like me having... Think about this. If I had eight wives... Because this one was really good at this thing, and this one was really good at this thing, and this one was really good at this thing, and this one was really good at this thing, and this one was really good at this thing, or if I have one wife and her name is Karen Basham. Which one elevates Karen Basham? Forsaking all others, one person. And I say that, do you see why idolatry, do you see why all these, by worshiping all these false gods and even, do you see why it's so, Karen would say, listen, why do you need all those you're not trusting in me? You see why idolatry and all these other things are so offensive to God? Because it undermines his sufficiency. It makes him out to be like he's just one of many pagan gods. And and you see it on your handout, God is fully satisfied through Christ's offering and thus can forgive sinners. He doesn't need my work. He's fully satisfied in Christ. And it's here that God's love and wrath meet. His righteous character, his, his, His offer of gift righteousness meet at the cross neither of those, not His love nor His wrath, listen, neither of those can be compromised if Christ is to be fully appreciated. It's not all wrath nor all love because both of them meet at the cross. Even in, even in again, we read First John 2, 2, 1 John Four ten also again he talks about um, propitiation. He says he talked, but he talks about love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a what? Propitiation for our sins. John, First John two two is in the context of restoring fellowship and all that. First John again, what what, would, what prevents that fellowship? Wrath. First John four talks about love again. Both are there. And both have got to be there when we present the gospel. And again, forgive me, but this is where I I go to these events and I go to these things and people present the gospel and their question is this. Their first question is, do you want to go to heaven? Listen, that ain't the issue. Because if I was sitting in the audience, you know what I'd say? Why don't you think I'm going to heaven already? Why ain't I going to heaven? That ain't the issue. You don't need the gospel. I don't need the gospel to get to heaven. I need the gospel to be reconciled to a holy God because my sins have deemed me unrighteous. Heaven is where I'm going to spend. Again, by the way, it's not up in the sky. It's a renewed heaven. That's a whole different question. A whole different issue. But again, heaven is simply where I'll dwell with that holy God for the rest of my life. Why? Because in Christ, he has declared me to be righteous. And you know why heaven is heaven? Because God is there. And again, it shows, our, again, nobody ever mentions the wrath of God. Again, my question becomes, what are people being saved from? You're being saved from the wrath of God due to your sins. And again, we can be certain, we can be certain, again, Christ's, Death fully satisfied that. You see, we can be certain in our salvation through Christ and the sufficiency of Christ because our own justification before God rests, rests on the reality that that in Christ God fulfilled His justice and His love completely satisfied. Rest in that. Why do you have to do that? Because we're under sin. Totally captive to sin's power. And yet, again, I get it. Nobody wants to hear about the wrath of God for four weeks. That that is not what we learn. You know, you don't read any books about that in Church Growth Strategy 101. But listen, it's the truth. And if you don't understand that, you'll never appreciate the gospel. You know, if you're sitting out stranded in the middle of the ocean in a boat, and you you think you could have made it in on your own anyway, and somebody rescued you, that's one thing. When you're out there and you realize there was no way you were going to get in apart from somebody rescuing you and that person rescues you, that's a totally different story. And, and I've, told, I've shared this at some point, but I, I remember I was with some guys up in, outside of Asheville at a buddy of mine's place and we were out in a boat and the boat died in the middle of a lake and it's getting dark and it gets cold in the mountains at night. And there was nothing we could do. And reality was starting to set in. This is going to be a long night with some dire consequences potentially. I don't want to overstate it. But listen, this body ain't built for hibernation in the cold. I'm just going to leave that up to y'all. There ain't a whole lot for me to work on at night. I ain't keeping anybody else warm either. And off in the distance... I mean, way in the distance, we see this little teeny thing walk out to the end of its dock, walk back. Listen, at that point, we did not care what anyone thought of us. We did not care anything. Here's what we cared about being rescued. We were screaming like I've never screamed before for help. And we were devastated when that, when that little shadow disappeared. And about five minutes later, he walked back out on the dock he got in his boat, and he started heading toward us. And he hooked us up, and he carried us home. You think, you think any of us argued with him? You think any of us like, oh, I appreciate that, but we'd have made it. No, 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 trust me, we wouldn't have, it would not have been pretty. Listen, if we don't understand that that's us, stranded. Unable to save ourselves, you listen, you will never, ever, ever fully appreciate the gospel. If you think you could have rode home on your own, if you, I mean, one of the guys we were with actually got in the, started to get in the water and think he's going to pull the boat in. That's how desperate, listen, you get cold and desperate, you do some dumb things. That was when it paid to be skinny and muscleless. Like, they cast lots and it wasn't me getting in the water. Listen, Listen. any gospel without propitiation at its heart, there's the word heart, you see it on a handout, it's not a biblical gospel. That's how important this is. We've got to maintain two things here, and Paul, Paul will show us this. Two elements are included. Number one, the covering or the putting away of sin so that it no longer constitutes a barrier to fellowship between sinful man and a holy God. And one, again, that's where, the, again, those two goats. But the satisfying, also, not only the putting away, but the satisfying of the wrath of God. He's got to deal with our sin, but then he's got to separate us from that sin. And you know what he does? In Christ, he separated us as far as the east is from the west, from our sin. Love of God, wrath of God, both are satisfied. Again, God is declared righteous, but both must be there. You see it on your handout. If we present a gospel that leaves out either God's wrath towards our sin or His love towards the sinner in sending His Son to take on flesh, then the gospel we present is incomplete. Listen, because here's the picture we present. If you you stiff-arm the gospel... If we don't speak to the love and the wrath of God, if somebody stiff-arms the gospel and rejects it, in their mind, they think there's a happy ending coming, that they just don't choose Christ, and hey, it's, hey we all go to heaven in a little rowboat, and it doesn't really matter. The biblical reality is this. If you stiff-arm and reject the gospel, you spend eternity in hell. Sorry, I'm sorry. That's the reality, according to the Bible. And if we leave out the wrath, we make people think, oh, well, I just, I'll just keep living like I did when I die. I just, it's just, you know, whatever. No, no, you will suffer the wrath of God due your sins. Some way, shape, or form, the wrath of God must be dealt with. You can deal with it yourself, or you can have Christ stand in your place as your substitute. It's like going to the grocery store. You put, a bunch of groceries, you put a bunch of groceries in your cart and you get that checkout line, somebody's got to pay the bill, right? Before you leave, hey, it can be you or it can be a substitute. Somebody's got to pay the bill. Go to Hunger Harris for lunch today, eat and get up and think you're just going to walk out. Somebody's got to pay the bill. Exactly. Exactly, KJ. And the shedding listen, the shedding of Christ's blood was Christ's, was God's offer to pay the bill. For all whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord, God's saying, if you'll repent of your sinfulness, if you'll look to Jesus in faith, I'll pay the bill. You see it on handout. God's wrath towards us as sinners is justified as personal and powerful as his love is in Christ's death. Here it is swallowed up the wrath, swallowed it up. I remember, I'm trying to, again, illustrations. I remember right after Karen and I, uh, right after we had Bradley. We went out to eat. First time we had gone out to eat, and Bradley's with a babysitter, and we're just trying to eat and get back. We don't even know what. It's been so long since we've gone out and not been. We don't even know what to do. But we, we go out to eat, and when it came time to pay the bill, I called the waitress over and I said, Hey, we need our bill. And she said, It's been taken care of. So, what do you mean it's been taken care of? Listen. Two couples from the class that we were involved with were sitting in the restaurant and just out of love paid the bill. Karen and I, we didn't argue. We got up and walked out of the restaurant. Why? Because the, we trusted the bill was satisfied. You see what Christianity is? God's saying, You got a debt. I crucified my son so that whosoever would call out to his name, listen, here's the pain, here's the fine, satisfied. In Christ, your, debt, your sin debt can be satisfied. You can get up out of here and walk out of, just like we left that restaurant, totally debt-free. The restaurant let us leave. Why? Because the bill was satisfied. All the requirements were met. And listen, in God's holiness, in His righteousness, He has to hate sin. And He's got to deal with it. And you see it on your handout, God's wrath is a function of His holiness, which is expressed in the demands of God's moral law and the right response to anyone who breaks it. And Christ's death satisfied the wrath. We're going to put all, we're, that's the big picture. And I hope you see the sufficiency of that, how works and, and all this other stuff just attacks. the. I mean, imagine if we'd have went over, I mean, I'm thinking about this on the cuff, so forgive me if it's dumb. But imagine if Karen and I would have walked over that couple and said, hey, can I get your tip? They paid our bill. You know how offensive that would be? It would be undermining. It would be undermining their grace. Attacking the sufficiency of their grace. Listen, this couple paid the bill, the tip, everything. I mean, the waitress literally said, hey, you're free to leave. Satisfied. Listen, nothing about Karen and I prompted them to do that. They did that at their own will, at their own initiative, out of the own goodness of their heart. As brothers and sisters. In conclusion, you see just a couple quick things, so we drill this down. Propitiation is the work of God himself. This is not paganism where we're trying to appease God or twist his arm or manipulate him in doing something for us. God did it. God offered a satisfactory sacrifice on behalf of sinners himself. So different. That is so different from the world. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, Jesus Christ. Not only is it the work of God Himself, propitiation was made by the death of Christ. The entire Old Testament, New Testament, that's the point. And God is seen as righteous because that which He promised in the Old Testament, He fulfilled in the New. He fulfilled in Christ. Jesus was our substitute. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. For all who believe. But not only, has, not only at, at, at the work of God, not only is propitiation made by the death of Christ, propitiation manifests God's righteousness. God can be just. That word there, it means righteous. He can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ offers this. Satisfies God's righteous demands, offers us the righteousness that's demanded of us. And I pray that we would grasp, as we put these individual pieces together, we'll see how they fit. But I pray that we would be a people who bask in the sufficiency of having our bill paid for those of us who are in Christ. And listen, my offer you to you today is this. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, I will be here at the front of this aisle after this service. If you have any questions, if, there, if, if anything about what I said has has pricked your interest or you please come talk to me so this offer is to whosoever would believe though today you can have salvation and believe if you're here and you say well chris i'm a believer here's my call for you live as sons and daughters live in the glory of having had your sins forgiven it doesn't, mean be, it doesn't mean be casual about sin being more forward, moving forward. It means live a life, live a life as a son and daughter. Live a life that, that glorifies the one who has rescued you.